welcome everybody. And uh, while we're warming up, I think we should take a moment um, to commemorate the former executive director of the Foreign Press Association, Suzanne Adams, uh, died recently and her family asked for people in lieu of flowers to send donations to the FPA scholarship fund. Uh, Suzanne was the director of the FPA for many, many years and um, ran it with a rod of iron, but it was iron covered in velvet, so it was a fairly successful operation, uh, and built the scholarship fund to where it was before the crash crashed it. Um, so uh, if you feel the edge, get in touch, look on the site, and you'll see it. The second piece of news is that we're trying to make this go viral because for four or five days, I've had a fever of 102. So I'm hoping if I collapse online, it'll be like one of those videos where the kids come running in in the middle and everyone will play it forever and the FBA will make a bid for immortality, even at the cost of my mortality. But I don't think it's a serious consideration at the moment, but you'll explain, it explains my sort of weakness of voice. But I've been told even my weak voice is stronger than most people. So. I shouldn't worry too much. So today we have Tinditin Jeparadzadeh, who is ideally purposed and positioned to try to explain what's happening in the Caucasus and in Georgia, because uh, she's Georgian, helps, but was brought up in Russia and has also been educated in the United States. So she understands the different perspectives and has been, uh, over the years that I've known, have been very uh, objective in weighing one against the other, and uh, especially discounting the idiocies of nationalism on all sides. Um, and this, this is one of the issues you're going to have to explain to us. We have the majority party in the Georgian parliament is voting for legislation, which is clearly put up by the Russians, even though most of the people who voted for them hate the Russians with a passion, uh, an unseemly nationalist passion. And I found this when I was there, I was advising the president's office and I suggested they actually set up Russian channels to talk to the Russian speakers because an awful lot of Georgians of various minorities actually speak Russian fluently and are receptive to it. There are lots of people in George in Russia who will be receptive, but the nationalist upsurge was so bad but uh, if you go to the streets of Tbilisi today, I think I want to remember one street corner where there was a sign in Cyrillic Russian. Uh, and that had been overlooked because nobody had the paint to cover it over. But so everybody read Russian. People watched Russian television, but no one acknowledged it. Uh, this is the type of... Um, it, it, it's, it's, well, idiocy. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Nationalist-inspired uh, virtue signaling. Um, I think, but you can qualify on this. So how is this, how is this traffic? How can a ruling party in Georgia with a staunchly anti-Russian um, electorate and a staunchly pro-Ukrainian electorate veer on the side of Putin and Moscow? I think that's the big question. All the rest is commentary. So you might think it's another question. Please go ahead, Tinnitin, and tell us. Thank you very much, Ian, and thank you to the FBA, uh, to the FPA for having me back. Um, I had the honor of speaking to you all when my book came out last year, Stalin's Millennials, and it's wonderful to be back. And I am a very proud Foreign Press Association member as well, so delighted to be here. Um, unfortunately, Ian, I don't have a very positive and optimistic answer for you. And sadly, part of the issue is because there is such a division of a division of a division within the country. And um, I think my Georgian compatriots will be very upset if I compare this to a Russian nesting doll because uh, comparing Georgia to anything Russian is, is obviously- <laughs> I, should explain that, uh, I should explain Tinitin was actually working on um, a Broadway musical, Matryoshka on yes. nesting dolls about the various levels of identity that she felt she'd right. been submitted to. So that's anyway, right. that's- that's a big footnote. <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, it is. But um, we digress. Um, there, there are lots of different layers uh, to to this answer, and really to the question as well. But 
Um, all in all, if we were to sort of dilute it and simplify the, the answer, it comes down to, as you said, the majority of the electorate, but really the majority in the bigger cities, such as Tbilisi and Kutaisi, not necessarily in the, the smaller towns and villages, um, because a lot of the, the Soviet and somewhat pro-Russian, maybe not pro-Russian necessarily, but more Russia-friendly um, legacies continue to be alive and well, particularly because a lot of those generations are still looking back on their youth with a bit of nostalgia. And a lot of that nostalgia has a lot to do with them not necessarily thinking that anything slightly pro-Russian is necessarily against Georgian identity per se. So that in and of itself is already problematic. Now, when we layer this with the majority of the electorate in the, in the larger cities, such as Tbilisi and Kutaisi, we have a problem because they are at the core a lot more pro-Western. And as you said, very much so more pro-Ukrainian than the current Georgian regime. Because as we know, the, the Georgian ruling party was not necessarily in favor, shall we say, of joining the uh, pro-Ukrainian anti-Russian um, sanctions when the war started. And they were very, very cautious in supporting in Ukraine in a way that would not completely kill off the channels of communication that they have going with Russia and not completely anger uh, the, the big Russian bear sitting at the helm of the Kremlin. So that all of that makes it all problematic and to make it even more problematic because we're Georgian and we like to overcomplicate everything, including our own lives. We are on track, still on track. We have not yet received our EU candidacy. Now that certainly makes everything a lot more complicated because on the one hand, the, the Georgian dream, the ruling party, has said and has been very vocal about saying that, of course, Georgia has a Euro-Atlantic um, future ahead of it. But then on the other hand, everything that they've, they've been doing, and primarily the majority of their policies, have been, shall we say, not necessarily anti-Russian, perhaps not pro-Russian, but certainly not anti-Russian at their core, and have been problematic as far as the European Union um, has been concerned. And this uh, draft law, or really the two draft laws that were submitted to the parliament for review and were essentially upon first reading approved by the parliament, the, the majority of which is Georgian dream driven, that was very problematic um, for um, for the, the West, the collective West, so to speak, and understandably so, because we are, as a country, sending so many mixed messages to the world, not just to the West, not just to Russia, but really to the world, to the world at large, because we are, on the one hand, trying to be very pro-Western. On the other hand, we don't want to make Russia too angry. We are pro-Ukrainian, but we're not really joining any of the anti-Russian sanctions in, a, in any explicit sort of manner. So all of this combined, paired with the fact that the majority of the streets in the larger cities, primarily, of course, Tbilisi, have been flooded over the past week or so with people that said this is not about being political or apolitical, supporting the ruling party or the opposition coalition, but really we are standing up for Georgia's European future. And that European future is being threatened by a variety of factors. And these two bills are, are really just one tiny element of, of that much, much bigger problem. Well, uh, it, the, the problem, as you say, Scott, I, I can see lots more cogs attached to all these wheels, even as we go. So, I mean, you have Vidim uh, Vili, the billionaire behind all of this. He's, he's made most of his money in Russia, so he can't afford to offend Russia. Absolutely. Whatever his personal feelings. Certainly. And allegedly a lot of that money continues to be partly frozen by the Russians, maybe not in Russian banks, but certainly in the hands of those who do control the, the various levers of power at the Kremlin. Um, and, and of course, that is a big issue for Ivanishvili because on the one hand, he wants to keep the electorate happy. On the other hand, he's not really actively in politics, but of course, many know that he is very much a gray cardinal in a lot of these um, sort of decision-making factors. Well, he picks, he picks who rules the country on his behalf, <laughs> as far as I can tell. I mean, when I was there, he's managed to appoint and then disappoint <laughs> president. <laughs> Yes. Because the, the one he appointed was was too independent for him um, and too pro-Western, one suspects. But uh, we've also got, uh, what's his name, Saklashvili, 
how does that fit in? He's in prison, isn't he? For those of you who don't remember, he was an early president, prime, president of president. Georgia, who in one of these wonderful post-Soviet brotherhood things, went off to Ukraine and became a provincial governor and then came back to Georgia and was arrested and has been in prison since and uh, is accused of all sorts of things. Well, one of, everyone's accused of everything and it really is a, a, a miasma of disinformation because you're never quite sure. Is there any smoke behind all of this fire? Any fire behind all of this smoke? There's loads of smoke always, but how much fire is it behind? And, you know, often it's a case of... Uh, Comparatives. Well, there's more smoke <laughs> than fire in that case, and more fire than smoke in the other case, because they've all got their hands in the till. <laughs> if, if I can be dismissive about it. So, you know, you 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 pick you you pick the degree of corrupt kleptocracy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So he, he is indeed um in prison and will remain in prison really for the foreseeable future or until. One, Ivanishvili has change of heart, whereby he doesn't feel like Saakashvili is a threat anymore. Or um, if there is so much Western, both European as well as US pressure, that they have to do something about it, because obviously they cannot keep him there indefinitely. Um, he is- Zelensky um, oh, takes this quite personal, isn't he? Because Zelensky's way for Saakashvili. Absolutely, absolutely. But not to the point where, even though, uh, let's not forget that Saakashvili is, after all, a Ukrainian national. Um, he is not a Georgian citizen anymore, which he gave up uh, because he went into politics in, in Ukraine. Um, and he was very much intending to, to be there. But then at the same time, he was running this extremely complicated and confusing campaign back in Georgia. It wasn't really a campaign, but it was a campaign. He was flirting with the idea for a very long time to go back. And reportedly, he received not very solid and not very um, reliable um, intel from, from his Georgian partners in crime. And, and I say that with sort of quotes because we don't know whether there were indeed partners in crime or whether they just wanted to get rid of him because he was still posing a problem to the opposition coalition, which in and of itself has many, many divisions within the party. And, and there are many obstacles there in terms of reaching a, a unison and a unifying voice within the opposition coalition. So. Some do say, and this could be disinformation, who knows, but some say that he was deliberately fed that very, very wrong intel saying that, oh, when you come back, you will be greeted with open arms and he comes back. And, you know, even if you are arrested, it'll just be for a couple of minutes and then you will get all of that media publicity and then you'll come out and and who knows, uh, this could be sort of Nelson back. <laughs> exactly. So that obviously didn't happen. Um, but that is also somewhat problematic at this point, a bit of um, a luggage um, um, for, um, for for the Georgian uh, dream and for Venishvili because he did attract a lot more attention over the past months than the ruling party had hoped. Not so much because he has been imprisoned for politically charged corruption on uh, politically charged corruption charges, but particularly because of his failing health. That has been very problematic because many say that he has not been granted um, the, the health care that he deserves um, in terms of when we just talk about uh, bare bones human rights. Uh, but many have tried to use that excuse to get him out and send him abroad uh, to seek treatment outside of Georgia because allegedly it could be very dangerous if he were to seek treatment in Georgia because who knows what they're, they're going to try to do to him. There's many allegedlies and reportedlies in a lot of what I'm saying, particularly vis-a-vis Saakashvili. And that is partly because it is so very difficult to tell who's telling the truth and who isn't. I think those who are lying, they've sort of lost the plot themselves. They don't really know when they're telling a lie, when they're telling the truth themselves. So how are we supposed to know that sitting on, on this side of, of the world um, and this side of the Atlantic, although Georgia is, of course, very far from the Atlantic itself. Um, but um, at the end of the day, I think that the biggest issue that we have and something that makes me feel very pessimistic as someone who is after all Georgian and as much as I enjoy being an American, um, I, I do never forget where I come from and these are my roots and I take this very seriously and it pains me to see that if I were someone who had the right to vote, which I don't because I'm not a Georgian citizen, I would genuinely not know who to vote for. I would know who not to vote for or if I were to vote somebody out, I would know who I want to vote out. But Given the choice in this plethora of different players, 
I don't think that the country has found its answer yet. Um, not because we don't have a lot of very bright and very talented people, but many of the bright and talented people have not found themselves upon return to Georgia after receiving their, um, not just um, education, but also um, professional experience outside of Georgia. When they came back, they sort of lost who they were and they couldn't really find a place for themselves. And that is a very, um, it's, it's a very different and very complicated cultural issue that we have. Uh, we, we love our own when they're out of sight, out of mind, but when they come back, uh, we start to view them as competition. And, and that is, of course, very sad because in the end, we end up shooting ourselves in the foot as a result, because the brightest, the smartest and the most brilliant minds sadly end up staying abroad, working for other governments, even if they're allied country governments, nonetheless, because they feel that they're able to give back to their country a lot more indirectly by working for other countries that can then support Georgia. But of course, that support is also being hindered by these latest moves, um, because as much as the European Union and the US and, and others want to continue supporting Georgia, now they are essentially being um, forced to, to stop doing so. Well, at first they will be forced to report an over-report that will be on the radar. And then before we know it, if we do follow um, what happened in, in Russia from 2012 onwards, when, when a similar foreign agent law was adopted by the Duma, um, we might see something similar happen where at the end of the day, these foreign funds will not either be cut off entirely or they will be under a magnifying glass to the point where those foreign powers to be at be uh, they're going to essentially say, Do you know what, we don't really want to bother anymore because whatever we try to do, it is always then turned into something that somehow plays against us. So we don't really know what's going to happen. We also don't know, frankly, if this foreign agent law will be killed off completely, or if the parliament or the majority within the parliament will come back within 30 days, they have um, up to 30 days to come back with some revisions. If they do come back with revisions, then we are looking at yet another essentially identical law, draft law, that is presented under a different title. So far, we've seen two. Um, there may be a third one. Um, the first one, just a reminder for, for those of us watching, uh, was on the transparency of foreign influence that essentially required any media outlet or NGO to register um, or to report their activities um, if there were more than 20% of their funding that came from foreign sources. So they were going to self-register as a foreign agent. Um, and then the the second one was um, just as uh, problematic um, on the registration of foreign agents. It was sort of very, very um, explicit. And that could extend from organizations to individuals. Um, and obviously, who would want to, to get themselves uh, you know, dirty and, and, and all of that mud? So many would have pulled out. And once that foreign um, support, which will then be called foreign influence, uh, pulls out of Georgia, what do we have really? Because all of the roads that we are so prou proud of that were rebuilt under Saakashvili, all of the, the many, many support programs and trainings and all the rest of it that people are so very proud of, a lot of that came thanks to the foreign support. I'm not Speaking on behalf of any foreign government, obviously, um, I'm a private individual. I do not work for, for any government. Um, however, I can say um, as a Georgian um, who was born in the country, who continues to visit very frequently and has family there, that without that foreign support, we are essentially going back to square one. And that is very dangerous because we will regress to the point where we will have nowhere to turn and we will have very few friends. And if we feel that Russia is our only friend, then we really have a problem because if we have Russia as a friend at the expense of alienating the West, so to speak, the US, Europe and others, we don't have very many options on the table. It's, um, it would go back a little further. When the Soviet Union was breaking up, Yes. Uh, the big boogie here was everybody's hero Gorbachev. Uh, right. In the case of the Baltics and Kazakhstan and Georgia, acted in a very, uh, what we'd say up north, is cack-handed way. He sent the troops in. Exactly. To constrain demonstrations. Exactly. So this has meant that the Balkans immediately said, okay, that's the signal, out we go. Uh, similarly in Kazakhstan, all of the people in Kazakhstan had posters of the riots uh, against uh, Gorbachev's attempt to impose a Russian 
mm-hmm. as a secretary general of the Kazakh Communist Party. It right. didn't matter that it was a corrupt Kazakh that was being removed. <laughs> they, they wanted a corrupt Kazakh rather than a corrupt Russian as secretary of the Communist <laughs> Party. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> there's no accounting for taste, as we say in the North. Yes. Um, and similarly in Georgia, I mean, what, what was it that precipitated the... Um, fairly bloody riots weren't they on april 9th mm-hmm. well so i i actually i'm i'm old enough to remember april 9th i, I remember it very vaguely of course because i was very young how old was i, I? your pension on the way out in the <laughs> yes <laughs> see i'm so old i can't remember how old i was in 1989 um but no i was uh, five years old at the time and i do i do remember it and really that initially was obviously, as we know, led by another ultra-nationalist, Kamsa Khurdia, who was so problematic in so many different ways, of course. Um, so, you know, that started as a, as a very, one would have said, a peaceful nationalist move. Um, but ultimately, once the Soviet tanks started rolling in, we realized very quickly that Actually, even though Gorbachev, with all of his perestroikas and glasnosts and all the rest of it, he's, he's not really our friend. And it took us a minute. It took a minute for the penny to drop because we were comparing him to others who were a lot bloodier. But um, given, given what he was going through domestically, obviously, he had a lot of his issues back home in Moscow. And he was losing popularity and the economy was getting it much couldn't worse. have helped in Georgia. He was grubbing up the vineyards. No, <laughs> that, did, that did not help. <laughs> that did not help, certainly. Um, what, Georgian what wine helped? is a big part of national culture. So Absolutely. wine cultivation is not the way to win friends and influence people. Definitely not. Definitely not. Um, one would have thought that what could have helped him was the fact that Chevardnadze, his foreign minister, was Georgian, but that did not help. Um, what many found very surprising was that a few years later, Shevardnadze comes back and we greet him with open arms and he becomes our post-Kamsahurdia president, uh, which was very strange for some to sort of understand because he wasn't seen as Georgia's friend for a long time, other than the fact that he his name was very Georgian. Um, some of what, what happened under Gorbachev was certainly not a pro-Georgia move, shall we put it. But then if we look at others like Stalin and Beria, yes, they were Georgians. Local boys made good, Stalin and Beria. Local boys, they're big. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Shevardnadze was certainly much, much better than than those two, and Ojo Nikitze, another wonderful, quote-unquote, Georgian. Um, But, you know, that, that... was very, very complicated. So that legacy is still alive and well. If I remembered a little bit, um, those many of those who were in the streets, obviously that was mainly really Gen Z um, or Gen Z, I should say to you, Ian, um, that, that drove a lot of those demonstrations over the past week. They were very, very active and they are younger than I am, um, but their, their parents remember April 9th very well. Uh, they remember the Soviet collapse. They remember their grandparents may even remember a lot of the bloodier days um, from, from the mid 20th century. So those legacies are still alive and well. So it is understandable how some who may have supported the Georgian dream just purely because A, they did not want Saakashvili to come back, which is why many supported them. And certainly many went out and voted in 2012 to vote Saakashvili and his regime out. Some who continued supporting um, the the Georgian dream continued voting to keep Misha out. Once those who realize that actually Misha is no longer necessarily a threat, but we don't really have an opposition coalition as such. We do on paper, but if we were to vote for the coalition, who's going to lead the country? Because they have no idea, frankly, what they're doing. Um, I would still be inclined to vote the Georgian dream out, even if I had loved them. They've been in power for much too long. They talk about the bloody days of Misha's nine years. They've been there much longer at this point, and there is no end in sight. So a lot of those who were demonstrating, yes, they were demonstrating because they they don't want Georgia to lose its path towards Europe. But really, a lot of those who were once not so long ago supporting the Georgian dream realized that actually what the Georgian dream is starting to offer us today is not the answer for us. We do not want this kind of Georgia. 
Where is the answer? I think that is the bigger problem because if we were to hold elections tomorrow, we don't really have a viable, we have lots of candidates who would be great in some sort of an office, but in terms of a leader, I think Misha's timing was fantastic because when he came in, when the Rose Revolution happened, his charisma, yes, he was definitely a nationalist at, at the core, uh, but all of those narratives that he was selling to the public, and, and I don't mean selling in sort of a vulgar way, because every campaign obviously has to sell their program and their message to the electorate if they were to get the votes. He was what Georgia needed at the time. Was he what Georgia needed when he got reelected? Probably not. But if we're talking about Misha 1 versus Misha 2, Misha 1, his first term, was the answer. We do not have that answer at the moment. And that is part of the reason why the Georgian dream is able to stay in power with or without the rigged elections. And we could have a separate conversation about that. They are likely going to retain the power unless something miraculous happens and we find that candidate who embodies what the people will believe, what the people will buy, because at the moment they're not. What they're mostly, not all of them, but most of them are buying is that we do not want to lose this second chance at getting our um, EU candidacy, which we semi-lost last summer. When Moldova and Ukraine got it, we did not. We were just told that, oh, you're doing well, continue. You're not doing that well, but you need, here's 12 things you're going to have to do if we are to consider you very seriously. And for now, we're just going to, to, to give you a little bite of what it could be like if you were to fulfill these 12 terms that, that we have to fulfill, that the Georgian dream says we have over-fulfilled. The opposition says we're not even close. I think the truth is somewhere in the middle, but we'll see. We still have um, a few months left. But um, one more thing I will add is if we were to adopt, if the Georgian dream had adopted either of these two draft laws, I think that essentially would have killed off any chances this year of getting the candidacy. Even if that weren't a deal breaker in and of itself, if the European Commission was veering towards saying no, I think that would have been a wonderful excuse that would have justified a breaker. Yes. Yes. Well, I mean, this is, I'm thinking of the other country of St. George. Um, this, this is almost like the obsession with Brexit in Britain. Yes. You ignore the fact that you're going to hell in a handbasket, the economy is plummeting. Right. There's seething corruption everywhere, and you put it all on a foreign relationship. Exactly. Yes or no? I mean, it's it is counterintuitive. Yes. And our, what to what degree are politics in Georgia about? Um, well, for example, social democracy versus neoliberalism, conservatism, nationalism. Are there any other issues, or is it just some form of tribalism that comes up? Georgian politics, partly because, and I would say mostly because we're such a small country, and really parts of the country that have a voice, and we're back to the Tbilisi's and Gutaisis of the country, um, voices that are being heard, at least, on a, on a national level, they're personality-driven. It's who you know, it's who you know whose cousin went to school with somebody else, and then you vote for them because, oh, I knew his grandmother, she was really nice. I remember my grandmother liked Misha Saakashvili because she knew his grandfather, who I think at one point taught her in med school. So she said, oh, I like him because the grandfather was really nice. <laughs> but the thing is, honestly, it's not just my grandmother, who was extremely bright, but when it, when it comes down to personalities mattering and who you know, and you know where you come from and your family, that still matters to the point where it's not about any of the political lenses that we can view Georgian politics through, but in the end, it is very much about people, obviously about identity, that, that's, that's a big portion, and, and those who do tap into, I wouldn't say ultranationalism, I think ultranationalism is very problematic at this point, and if Misha were to run again, he certainly could not run using the same narratives and messages that he was using um, right after Shevardnadze. That would not be very successful. I think the people, the nation as a whole has grown. Um, we we may not have made the sort of progress that I, that you know one would hope we would after all this time, but we have made progress. The nation has, society has, and I think people are a lot sharper 
And it's a lot easier to for them to see through these ultra nationalist sort of messages of, you know, we we are the best and, and, you know, forget about the ethnic minorities. Because at the end of the day, as you said earlier, when we started this conversation, we are igno ignoring our ethnic minorities. Having television channels in Russian does not mean pandering to the Kremlin. And it's very, very, very hard to explain this to an average It's a fifth person. column into the Kremlin, if you do it properly. And, and yes, and yet the Azeris and the Azerbaijanis and many others for whom Russian is still a lot easier. Yes, you cannot obviously have multiple channels in, in you know, Azerbaijani, for uh, Azerbaijani um, people and the Armenian people and anyone who has found a home, created a home for themselves in Georgia. They may not be fluent in Georgian, but you can actually use, unfortunately, it's the lingua franca of the Soviet legacy, but nonetheless, it is still in many ways a lingua franca for them. And it is a lot easier for them to tune into the news and if you give them the messages that are not the Sputniks and, and the Russian ORT Channel 1 driven narratives, you are actually, as Georgia, helping yourself because you are giving them the messages that you want them to receive because now you're, you're actually alienating them and forcing them to go online and read Sputnik and, and watch Rasia 2, which is very problematic, but they don't have much else. So when we talk about media independence, we're not just talking about their their independence in terms of journalism, but bare bones language that they broadcast in. But as you said, Ian, it's very, very hard to sell to most Georgians the viability and the, the fact that it will not be a threat if we have a Russian channel for our ethnic minorities. It does not have to be fed information by the Kremlin. I actually think that the Kremlin would find it more problematic, to be honest, because then once you have an online presence, the Russians might start in Russia um, and those who have fled since the war started, they might start Russia watching the, the news and watch that channel with an influx of, of Russians who after, well, one, when the, the full-scale invasion started, but really after the first wave of mobilization was, was announced, so many Russians, hundreds of thousands, came to Georgia. What are they watching? I would like to know very much because they have no intention of learning. First of all, they have no motivation to learn Georgian. They don't know how long they're in the country for. They're not going to bother learning a language that has absolutely nothing to do with the Russian language. Um, it's not a, a Slavic, Slavonic language. So they're not going to start their lives from scratch. So what are they going to watch? Probably not CNN either. And you're alienating them as well. Yes, we don't want to make the Russians feel too comfortable because then they will never leave. And then we give Putin the excuse to come and liberate his people from Georgia, just like he liberated his people from and is continuing to uh, liberate his people from Ukraine, from Eastern Ukraine and other parts of the country. We don't want that to happen either. But if these propaganda carriers are now in our country they're on our soil on our soil and there's nothing we can do about it for the time being because there is no visa regime with russia or with most other countries um they are going to stay and they are going to inflict the messages that they receive from home whether or not they agree with it because that's what they're watching and reading upon the georgians that now are starting to feel a little bit like really guests on their own soil because very few Russians want to admit that they are visiting. They somehow still, and I think this is also a Soviet legacy, even those who absolutely don't, don't mean to insult us, and, and many of them are actually lovely people. I have wonderful Russian friends. So I hate to overgeneralize and say that all of Russia is evil. That's ridiculous and also very close-minded. But they do give off that American word vibe um, that they're at home because not long ago they had colonized, well, Moscow had colonized Georgia, among other republics, and therefore they don't feel like they're visiting us, and they're certainly not tourists. They're at home. Yes, I've seen the feeling the British in India, myself included. Yes. <laughs> this ain't so foreign, I recognize that. Um, <laughs> what, um, but we have in, uh, we have serious problems. My enemy's enemy is my friend. What do you do when your enemies have so many enemies? I mean, Georgia is balancing between Armenia, yeah. Russia, right. 
Turkey. Turkey, yeah. Azerbaijan. Mm-hmm. And then we're not before we get to the Ab- Abkhazia and Ossetia, because of course Moscow did the bit there. They made it it's impossible for Georgia to be seriously considered for EU membership right. as long as the issue of Abkhazia and Ossetia are left um, unresolved. Yes. The EU is the, the EU is trying to cope with Scotland and Catalonia, the last thing it's going to do is to import yet another um, marchland country. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And and that's what's a million dollar question. Unfortunately, we don't have enough time in the world to to unpack all of the, the various nuances within the question and then let alone get to the answer. But I think in a nutshell, if we could have, yes, I love Georgia and it's a beautiful, beautiful country, not because I'm from there, but it is genuinely a beautiful country and our landscape is gorgeous. But goodness, if we could have chosen a more complicated geography, I don't think one exists in terms of what our aspirations are that are in absolute and sort of dire contradiction to where we are located on the planet in terms of our neighbors. And we've, I would say we've still... Obviously, um, it could, it's not perfect, but we have managed to maintain some sort of a balance in these very, very complicated relationships as a very small country, an oil corridor nonetheless. So it's not like we're completely meaningless. Um, so it's also in their interest, for example, in Azerbaijan's interest to not necessarily make Georgia an enemy because there, there is work and business uh, to be done and money to be made. Um, but um, that has been very complex and very complicated for us in terms of where we are geographically. Turkey is is, is another um, great example of how much more complicated could it get? Bearing in mind that obviously Turkey already has a very complicated and very, for the West, very complicated and complex and problematic relationship with Russia, that corridor, diplomatically speaking, is is also a burden on on Georgia. But there's nothing we can do about it because it's not like we can pack up and and move somewhere else and go camping somewhere, you know, next to Australia because it it probably would be a lot less complicated. Um, that paired with the fact that there are, of course, many who have those nationalist tendencies because it's a very small country with, and I say this with love, but with a lot of insecurities, because we are a very small country with very big ambitions um, and quite a bit of arrogance, um, as as many small countries can also be obviously very arrogant. Um, And part of it stems from a very complicated history and a lot of insecurities that arise as a result. So that has made it very complicated for us to to maintain good relations with the Turks. I mean, we still go to Turkey. Many Georgians go to Turkey when they go on vacation because yes, it's cheaper and it's right there and it's around the corner. It's cheap, it's there, it's available. Um, it's familiar enough. It's also not that we are enemies, of course, but it's it's a familiar frenemy. Um, we know each other. We've lived next to each other for a very long time. And somehow it's it's okay for me to order Turkish coffee in a Georgian restaurant. But if I try to order um, Russian pilmeni in a Georgian restaurant and actually use those very words, which you have to for Turkish coffee because otherwise they will bring you filter coffee. I cannot order Russian pilmeni in a Georgian restaurant because it's just too soon. And it's going to take a very, very long time for you to walk into a Georgian restaurant and order, order Russian pilmeni from Siberia and not get asked if you're lucky very politely to please leave now and never come back. We've gotten over the Turkish coffee situation. The the Greeks have not, but that's a different conversation. (laughs) I have to make a mental point when I go to some of my favorite Greek restaurants to not order Turkish coffee. But um, that takes time. That does take time. And I think historically, We've had an understanding with the rest of our neighbors. We've reached an understanding and we've had it for a while now. Um, And I'm talking here about obviously Armenia and Azerbaijan and Turkey. That's a different matter with Russia because it's been such a turbulent relationship with too many ups and downs. Because even even when relations got a bit better, it was sort of very hard for me to buy into it because it was so unnatural to go from that to suddenly being lovey-dovey with each other and everything is wonderful and we love each other and everything's great. It does not happen overnight. Just like you cannot as a country, and I'm talking about Georgia in this instance, shed your Soviet history overnight. 
right after the Soviet Union collapses and say, you know, forget that the past 70 years happened. It never happened. Let's move on. Let's stop teaching Russian in schools and everything will be hunky-dory. It just does not work like that. It just does not. It's still very much alive in our living memory, in our collective memory. And that will take time. Fortunately, we are diplomatically and, and in terms of everything else, in terms of trade relations and all the rest of it, doing quite an okay-ish job, I would say, with, with the other neighbors. But with Russia, it's going to take a very long time and it does take two to tango. I don't see how Russians would would also want us to, to have the same relations that we enjoy, for example, with Azerbaijan, even though, again, very complicated and we have a lot of problems. Yes. This uh, sort of ghost of the feast that doesn't get mentioned, Armenia. Yes. That's a very complex. Armenia has a potent lobby in the United States and in Europe, yes. and uh, yes. uh, Georgia is somewhat estranged from that lobby. So the right. Armenians and the Georgians don't get on for reasons uh, which no one's ever completely explained, but um, maybe you can. Uh, I wish I could. I'm, I'm certainly far from an expert on this, but I think um, as a Georgian, I can tell you that although I, I obviously have some wonderful Armenian friends, there was always um, sort of a very playful competition between us, right? So who who well, first invented who, who, this Who, who ran the mafia in the Soviet Union? And the <laughs> <network>? <laughs> serious competition. <laughs> Very serious, but I'm starting activity and family connections. Yes, I'm starting very micro here with dishes. <laughs> then you expand the lens. Um, but uh, even small things like that, you know, we 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 start to we really do compete with each other. But it's not. I think it's actually to a degree healthy that sort of competition. And we know, I think, the Georgians and the Armenians, we know when to stop. At times, not always, but at times we know when to stop, when not to cross that red line. And obviously, with Azerbaijan and Armenia and with Nagorno-Karabakh and the, the many, many issues that they have with each other, different historical problem that we're not going to uh, delve into now. I think there, Georgia has been an intermediary sometimes successfully. And I think that buffer that we've created with our geographical presence in terms of our pretty comparable ties, I would say, with both, right? I mean, there are times when we're closer to one versus the other, but it's just like going back to kindergarten and saying, who's your best friend? And you have two friends and some days you're closer to one and the other days you're closer to the other, but you're essentially a buffer between these two who, by the way, hate each other. Um, and the two know that, that you can be a buffer when needed. And us being small, actually plays into their hands oftentimes, uh, which for example, Russia cannot really claim to be a true intermediary and facilitator um, when it comes to <laughs> yeah. those um, dialogues. What makes you say that? Um, <laughs> well, because then Russia has a lot more to lose if with either one really, because then we're talking very serious money. In Georgia's case, we're not talking serious money, right? When we talk about energy, for example, it's not the same trade is not the same. I think everything is much, much smaller in terms of the numbers. And therefore there is a little bit less at stake and we can be a little bit more flexible in this dance. And sometimes it doesn't make sense because last week we said so-and-so and this week we're saying something else. You know, one is pro one and the other uh, narrative is, you know, anti the other, for example. But in Russia's case, I think because this bear cannot be very flexible, if nothing else, because of its sheer size. It's difficult for Russia to have nimble, even if Russia had different leadership and, and everything were to change miraculously overnight, which I doubt, it would be very difficult for Russia to change its political um, everything, really, including its relations with its neighbors overnight. Stalin did that in 1939. Well, we also know how, right? <laughs> <laughs> there are ways to do it, but I would hope that we don't go back and use um, some of his cheat sheets. I certainly hope we don't. Um, but there it's a lot more complicated. And again, there is a lot more at stake. And I don't know how genuine it is with Georgia. I think we genuinely do want to have pretty good relations with both and we have given up on fixing that relationship between the two of them. And in a way, we have been very good at ensuring that the fact that the two don't talk to each other but both talk to us, it does very often play into our hands and we've gotten better at using it to our own advantage. 
So how important is it, Simon, ask Simon Locke, yes. for journalists in the US to keep a close eye on developments in Georgia? Is this a classic case of a faraway country of which we know little and should care even less? Or is it a sort of a Sarajevo on the hillside waiting to start World War Three? Well, I hope not, Simon, <laughs> to your to your letter. You did, that's the, I, I glossed it that way. Oh, well, then, Ian, I hope not um, on your letter point. Certainly, I hope not. But I do think that it's a lot more important. And frankly, what makes me feel better as a former journalist myself is that something that I would have find very, found very difficult to sell to an editor 15 years ago when you and I were working together. Um, it would have been very hard for me to sell it to an editor then and say, you know, let's write about Georgia for more than a day in the US I'm talking about. It's a bit easier now. And I think as horrible as, as it is in terms of what's happening in Ukraine at the moment, that has put Georgia on the map in terms of our problems that cannot be glossed over again, like they were in 2008. I think the US, Europe to a, to a lesser degree, but certainly the US, NATO, most certainly learned their lesson in 2008. Had NATO and the United States done a bit more about Georgia and not forgotten about it once it fell off of the headlines, the leading headlines in the New York Times and the like, shortly after the Five-Day War. We, I don't think we would have stopped Ukraine from happening, but it may have been a slightly different picture today. And having learned that lesson, the great thing is that I think we are seeing how they did learn the lesson. They are paying more attention to it. I think even with the draft law, I don't think we would have gotten as a country the amount of media attention that, that we received when the draft law was announced, even before the, the parliament actually approved it in its first reading. There were media outlets, leading media outlets that were talking about it. And, and I do hope that the interest remains on Georgia, sadly, for a variety of, of very sad reasons, and the, the biggest of, of them all being Ukraine, whatever happens in the country now will not be glossed over so easily. And I think Russia knows that, the Kremlin knows that, and they would have to be a little bit more subtle than they were in 2008 for them to actually get away with it. And hopefully they won't get away with it, but we don't know for sure if there will be a spillover. Some have been talking about all sorts of spillovers in Moldova, for example, with Transnistria, all the rest of it. We don't know. Some have said that, oh, but Georgia is small potatoes. They're not going to bother. We don't know. But it is a very convenient second front. And this influx of Russians, even though, as I said earlier, many are my friends, many of them I don't know. But at the end of the day, having that influx of Russians in Georgia is not going to make us feel safe anytime soon because our borders are what they are. And obviously the 20% in terms of the occupation is growing by the minute. But we also cannot sleep soundly every night. And it's not really about being anti-Russian anymore. It's just about us feeling extremely insecure. And I would argue quite rightly so because the Kremlin's citizens are sleeping very, very close to our bedrooms and our pillows. And sometimes our pillows are next to each other. And again, they may mean no harm whatsoever, but that collective responsibility, I think the time has come that there has to be some sort of collective responsibility. And we are seeing that sometimes it's exaggerated. And other times I would argue that perhaps it isn't exaggerated because we have to be careful. We weren't in 2008. Georgia was not careful enough in 2008. We made a lot of faux pas and we were brazen and we did not, and I'm talking about the Saakashvili regime. We could have played it differently. We could have listened a bit more to our Western partners. We did not. And I certainly hope that if nothing else, the ongoing war in Ukraine has actually opened our eyes in Georgia to the point where we are going to be that extra bit more cautious this time around. And hopefully I'm wrong and there will not be another time around. Well, we're also not dealing with a totally rational actor. You mentioned the bear. Well, this, you know, this bear has a very sensitive nose. So it's, yes. it's interesting that one of the issues was sanctions against Georgian citizens fighting for Ukraine. Yes. This is not significant militarily, but it's obviously something that gets up the nostrils of um, the Russian bear. Absolutely. And, you know, Putin probably wakes up in the middle of the night and says something must be done. 
exactly. So it's that type of reaction, which uh, George asked, unless it goes in a mm. complete Finlandization way, that's something that just has to take into account the uh, possibly irrational reaction of Moscow to perfectly reasonable things. If volunteers want to go to Georgia, then why not? Or go from Georgia to uh, okay. Ukraine? Right. Exactly. And also, we don't know if if the, the big Russian bear, the irrational Vladimir Putin, he could wake up tomorrow morning, as you said, and say, do you know what? I, I kind of fancy going into Georgia today. Why don't we roll our tanks in? Good luck. Good luck. We are at his mercy in many ways. And I think the internal divisions and the internal chaos does not help us but it does help Putin because he's very good at sowing, obviously, additional chaos on, on top of chaos. Once he sees that something is off, he knows exactly what sorts of narratives to sow into an existing problem. And then that chaos turns into major turbulence that is very difficult to manage. And once he sees what he saw, saw over the past week, he knows that there are many internal issues within the country and a lot of self-contradictory messages that are coming out of the country. And I'm more worried now because we are not really acting as a country in unison at the moment. While we're bickering with each other, I think we essentially are opening ourselves up to the big Russian bear because we are so very vulnerable, which as we saw, Ukraine really wasn't to this degree. I mean, they had a lot of issues internally, obviously a lot of issues, but they came together. and. I don't know, given the current realities that we're facing in the country domestically, that we would necessarily be able to come together that way. And many Georgians have said that they are. I mean, how can you be jealous of Ukraine with all, with all of the horrors that are going on in the country? But they were sort of a bit envious of how the nation that is a lot bigger in numbers than we are came together. We are not very good at that. And that is another thing that Georgia is a bit um, envious of, of Armenians, right? Because you talked about uh, foreign lobbying. You know, Armenians, the Armenian diaspora, and the, you know, Armenians, when they leave Armenia, they don't leave their roots behind, certainly. Mm -hmm. And they stick together. They may not love each other on a personal level, but they stick together and they support each other. And that's something that we have yet to learn as a, as a country, as a nation. Um, instead of trying to compete with each other once we cross the border, but also internally, um, instead of supporting, we sort of start competing. And when it comes to something such as if, God forbid, the Putin regime were to decide to roll their tanks into Georgia all over again and revisit the Stalin Museum in Gori with their tanks um, on their way in, I think I don't know if we would be prepared if nothing else, I don't know if we would be prepared morally as a nation, but who knows? I would love to be proven wrong. We've got one time for one final question from uh, sure. Yushanda Seniuk. I'm not quite sure of the pronunciation right. Um, she's asking if there's any sort of link to other countries. You know, Moldova has Romania in the background. Ukraine has Poland and the Baltics. Um, who is George's best friend? Oh, it's not Armenia. We've worked that out. It's not Armenia, although it's sort of playful. I find it very, um, very playful and very flirtatious how we compete with you. It's almost cute. <laughs> but um, best friend, see, that's another problem is I don't know if we have a best friend. We flirted with a variety of nations, with a variety of countries. Um, I think I think a country that we've said was our best friend over the past years with you was Ukraine, but then obviously um, in terms of the leadership's response to right after the, the full-scale invasion in February of last year, I don't know if we've necessarily proven that, or, that to our Ukrainian friends. I don't know if we have. Certainly the politicians haven't. I think the people have. Um, but the politicians less so. So there, there, there is a very problematic um situation there with with ukraine and again very mixed messages that we're sending to kiev um the baltics i think uh we could have been uh, i hoped that we would have been a bit closer to the baltics particularly estonia i think we had a lot of mutual interests that uh, not during wartime but in more peaceful times we we could have explored together not in the least sort of my 
main uh, brain, uh, my main uh, bread and butter being uh, obviously digital and all things cyber and all the rest of it um, in that realm as well. I think we could have explored um, stronger um, and, and tighter sort of links uh, between the two of us because they're clearly very much ahead of us in the game and they, we could have learned a, a whole lot from them. Um, Poland, again, we have very good relations with them, but I don't know if we have a best friend. I think over the past years, we've tried to turn Ukraine into our best friend because frankly, we felt that we could have been Ukraine's plus one wherever they went in, in terms of the Euro-Atlantic alliances and all the rest of it, you know, all the good things that happened to Ukraine, we hope that they would invite us to the gala. Um, I, I think we, our government has certainly shot itself in the foot in terms of getting that invite. Um, I think others are more likely to get invited um, after all is said and done um, in terms of the war. But again, it's not quite over yet. And I think what Kiev is seeing and what the Ukrainian people are seeing that the way that the, the public stood up against what its government was doing in Ukraine as well as everything else, um, that has shown that the, the Georgian people certainly consider Ukraine its friend. The government, perhaps not so much. Um, and one more thing that I'll add is, I don't know if, um, if, if you saw Ian, but uh, the prime minister the other day, I watched his very, uh, very sort of uh, problematic interview on Imedi, which is a state channel. And he essentially um, asked very politely, quote unquote, asked Zelensky to please back off and stop involving Georgia in these shenanigans and, and stop trying to open Russia's second front in Georgia. So there we are killing off any opportunities to call Ukraine our Zelensky has not shown any serious signs of doing that, has he? No, he has not. Well, he has certainly not shown any signs, but what the, the Georgian That's government a wants to do, play to the Russian gallery. Certainly not, but what the Russian what the Georgian government wants to show to its people, the electorate, is to say, you know, here's why we are not very vocal and explicit beyond the humanitarian help that we've provided to Ukraine in supporting Ukraine, politically speaking, because they are so evil in trying to drag Georgia into this war. They're not. But it is a narrative that they hope will help them as we near, let's not forget, the 2024 parliamentary elections in fall of next year. That could be a deal breaker. And whatever the Georgian dream can do today, they're doing their very best because these people will have to go out there and vote. And with or without slightly rigged elections, it might be a bit tougher for them to, to keep the momentum going if things keep going so very poorly for them. But who knows? Jeff Gold just popped in in between saying, excellent guest speaker of you. He wants to know anything the EU or the USA can just to support the better angels in Georgian politics. Or maybe the less obnoxious devils. I mean, we're on our scale. <laughs> Thank you, Jeff. Um, I think continuing to do what the US and Europe have been doing, irrespective of these draft laws and all the rest of it, and not losing faith that the Georgian people and the Georgian government today are not one and the same, and not getting disillusioned and not saying, you know what, we're trying to help you enough is enough, we're pulling out. You've done anything but said thank you for what we've done over the years. That's what I'm a little bit afraid of. I don't think that's coming anytime soon, but there's so many times, only so many times one can say instead of thank you, no thank you for support. And of course the US has its own interests and don't we all, we all have interests. That's how we're wired, we're human after all. And then when we get into politics, there's very serious interests there. But even so, a lot of the help that we have been getting from the US and Europe in Georgia has definitely been very helpful and has helped us come a long, long way. So I just hope that they, and here I mean the collective West and the Euro-Atlantic Alliance and all the rest of it, they do not stop supporting us and they do not take no from the Georgian government as a no from the Georgian people because we are not speaking in unison here. Great. Well, thanks very much, Tinnitin. This is a Ian Williams with the Foreign Press Association in New York, and I've been talking to Tinitin Jeparadzada. I've been trying to talk. I'm croaking now. Um, sorry. <laughs> I didn't die on screen, so I've missed my <laughs> viral moment. I'm sorry. The fever notwithstanding. Oh. So uh, thank you very much, everybody. We will be having yet more. And as, as I mentioned, uh, we are currently inviting 
solicitation, not solicitations, donations to the Foreign Press Foundation Scholarship Fund in the name of Susan Adams, our former executive director who set it up. And uh, that's on our website. Please go and look and we will do more soon. And Tinitin, especially on the Balkans, which is an area like, um, how can we say it? it? It has far more history than consumed in such a small geographical area. <laughs> Is that Bismarck? I think it was. Okay. <laughs> Thank you very much, Tennyson. Thank you, everybody. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm looking at